Pull Request, live from the heart of Brooklyn. Pull Request is an hour-long podcast about everything in and relating to technology. Starring three techno experts, Eric Newman, hi, Chris Grabowski, hello, and Tyler Dinner, hey there. This week's episode, Colonel Sanders. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another Pull Request. My name is Eric Newman, and to my left is nobody because we do the show on the internet. But let's pretend today, shall we? So to my left is Chris Grabowski, the most talented back-end, beautiful orchestration, infrastructure, cloud developer I've ever seen. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well, and I just want to say, Mama's not wrong, Colonel Sanders, you're wrong. (laughs) That's right, and also I forgot to welcome in our studio audience this week. How are we doing today, studio audience? Yes, that's right, that you can see us live do this show nowhere. Anyway, they'll be here to laugh at our funny, funny jokes. That's right. Anyway, how are you doing today, Tyler? I'm good, thanks. It's been a good week. I forgot to introduce you. There's so much stuff going on. How and I cut rude. you off during your introduction. That is how a double. Rude. Uh, how rude, yes. I'm sorry. How now that we have more intimacy and it's completely silent? How are how are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, did you guys enjoy the nice weekend? Yeah, it was beautiful out. Yeah, it was roasting in the uh, rotisserie of New York. <laughs> we got to marinate in all of that that garbage stank as it gets above eighty degrees. It's great. I started my I morning have- off with eggs Benny on French toast, so I'm just uh, so happy. Do you do you poach the eggs yourself? No, I, I had brunch with my parents. Brunch with your parents? Oh, well, I, I would call it breakfast, but they call it brunch. Okay, I don't and think you, ten a.m. Uh, is brunch. <laughs> ten to I. three is brunch. Yeah, and uh, I mean whatever. Uh, meals are a social construct. Um, but would you? I mean, I guess is poaching an egg hard? I never really, I never really uh, tried. I, I don't know if it's not fried or scrambled. It's above my head. <laughs> Yeah, I've been getting well, into two egg omelets recently. It depends Ooh. on it depends on the property the eggs live on and whether or not they have good security there. Ah, <laughs> well, be- <laughs> because uh, because I live in gentrified Brooklyn, I'm actually into the cage, not just cage free, not just free range, not just organic. No, Farm these table. are blue eggs. Ooh, blue. They well, have brown I, eggs. I they have white eggs. Come from blue these birds, are, right? Exactly. They, when they when they're really are, young, are you getting your they, protein on? <laughs> when they're when they're really young, they uh, inject these hormones into the chicken to make them blue. No, what happens is I don't know. I don't know actually how the are, eggs are these crow eggs. Probably are you eating crow eggs? eggs? No. I mean that wouldn't be bad though. Right? Are you eating Easter eggs? Well, you'd, are they you'd be unlocking the fighting power of the crow. So you know. No, uh, my powers come from yogurt actually. Um, anyway, this has been... <laughs> that explains so much, dude. Yes, this has been the delicious dish on NPR. Join us next week for... Uh, no. And I have <laughs> to get... I have to stop doing those join us next week jokes. I realize I've done them in like half of our shows. And there's not going to be... It's not funny when every week oh. is a next week. On ne- a- next week we'll have Alec Baldwin with his sweaty balls. Yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so this week... Is uh, we're calling it what Colonel Sanders, and that's because uh, oh oh it has twenty one uh, has a secret recipe of twenty one different herbs and spices. Twenty one different herbs and spices that go is it into 13? the how many centerpiece of your opera? Twelve herbs and is it twelve herbs and spices. 
I don't think we're prepared for this show. Wow. All right. (laughs) We know nothing about KFC. We know nothing (laughs) about the secret recipe for for Kentucky Fried Chicken, but we are going to talk about operating system kernels. And uh, that's it. The differences and stuff about them and what goes into a kernel and what kernels do and why it's not spelt colonel or why that one isn't spelt phonetically. Anyway, but before we get into that... Christian, uh, you added this link about, uh, for conferences of the week, there's DockerCon's kick-ass intro video. What is this? So, uh, this week, uh, Docker's YouTube, uh, put up the, uh, video from, uh, DockerCon, which happened, uh, either last week or the week before, uh, my memory's a little fuzzy on that. I think it was last week when they announced that they were being changed to Moby. Yeah, okay, then yes, it was last week. And so just uh believe it was two days ago, they uh, posted day one, and then yesterday they posted day two. They're up on YouTube. Uh, and uh, the first thing that really hit me there was just they had they put in like uh, just so much effort into this intro that uh, I've really not seen a, t- a tech conf- conference kind of do this. It kind of reminds me of like uh, watching like MTV uh, Music Awards back when those were a thing. Yeah, no, it's uh, I just I I tried playing a little bit of it. I know it's hard to really get the whole graphics part of it while we're doing an audio program, but um they made like what looked like an Atari game, a very 8-bit-esque uh intro and uh of I what is the symbolism here? There are these four They're, spaceships uh, containerizing shooting somebody. a uh, squirrel. Is that what that was? A squirrel? Yeah, they're containerizing a... it. Oh, squirrel barbecue. Okay. Con, what does it say? Con, whatever. I don't need you to do commentary for the video. Yeah, this is a lot of. I know they're trying to purposefully go over and above to be a you know funny, but um, I think they actually lost sight of the joke and just really. Oh did no! Too I much with this video. This was. Is it? Is, uh, I think this is just even too much for a joke. This is just ridiculous. No, I, I was. I, I found it hilarious. Unlocked. I thought it was a great joke. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, uh, what came out of the Docker conference other than them changing their name? And uh, yeah, Moby, I'd say, was the big thing of saying you've got all these things under this one umbrella for development. But then the idea with Moby is, oh, uh, you can build out all those tools that uh, like your day to day developers use, and really only the people who uh, use the underlying libraries uh, are the ones getting screwed. Which there are a decent amount, though, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a drag. So I was trying to play Moby's. Uh, something uh for hmm. that funny joke yeah um yeah i don't i don't know um the question that i have is it seems like every big framework uh has its own conference these days how big do you have to be to get your own conference well, Docker's not a framework you'd say why uh, does or um, yeah but do, why does docker need its own conference couldn't it be at some kind of like nerd fest 17 <laughs> I, well, I mean, that's music festivals. <laughs> like, instead of, like, all these different conferences, you just go they, to, like, 12 conferences in one. They already have these things at South by Southwest. I was going to say, that's I thought what South by Southwest was. But uh, why, does Do- I, I don't get it. why does Docker need its own? Like, why does, why does Facebook need its own conference? Is it well, just, uh, so the Facebook one is a bit more like uh, th- that's kind of taking a page out of Apple's whole thing of, like, hey, here's what we're doing. Yes, uh, and, and I know they're trying uh, to be Apple the, in the same way that the Microsoft Docker, tries to be Apple. The Docker one is a little bit like that, but it's more of a focus on the fact that 
it is its own technology. It's, it's it is there's an ecosystem around it. Uh, I think when something evolves from becoming a single program into an entire ecosystem, that's when it kind of warrants a conference, as opposed to like, hey, I read a program. I'm going to have a conference now. That doesn't work. It's, hey, I've got this whole ecosystem. Multiple developers are using this series of tools that are built around. Uh, it could have started from one program, but it evolved into a series of tools and this just uh, mentality and this way of doing things. And that's when I think it does warrant a conference. You have a lot of like-minded individuals within this ecosystem uh, working on these things or using these things, and they get together and discuss that. But what do you really get out of a conference versus a local meetup or versus some kind of you know forum or well, blog post? A meetup or... is usually like I don't know anywhere from two to three hours long in general. Yeah, no, but what are you really longer. doing at these at these but conferences? Then You're the listening to somebody. Though, they're kind of like a day long thing. You've got you got much more of an educational opportunity. Uh, generally speaking, there's going to be uh, just more faces there, which could mean more. Uh, trying to think of the right word, I wouldn't say significant, but more. More big faces there. Okay. I have a big head. Does that help me any? Uh, no. No. It's a, uh, anyway. Ma- uh, Magic uh, Andy, yeah. Not on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, audience. Um, anyway, uh, can GitHub, are they big enough to have their own conference? They do. They, uh, they have, um, uh, what is it? GitHub Universe is the big one. Oh, so they do have their own conference. Yeah. Or, okay. That's cool. And speaking of GitHub, that means it's time for our GitHub issues of the week. Although this week I did not do uh, GitHub issues uh, necessarily. I found uh, low-level, almost entirely existing in the kernel uh, vulnerabilities, which the kernel is hosted on GitHub but does not have its issues on GitHub. Okay, our GitHub issues of the week won't be from GitHub. Landed on thick with the sound effects. Okay. Um, first one is a, uh, I think it's CVE 2016-10229. This is from the Computer Security Resource Center and the National Vulnerability Database. Uh, this is UDP.C in the Linux kernel uh, before, four, uh, before 4.5 allows attackers to execute arbitrary code via UDP traffic that triggers an unsafe second checksum calculation during the execution of a received RECV system call with the message peak flag. What is this? Uh, essentially, you can do a remote execution from sending UDP traffic to a uh, computer for... Uh, uh, Linux systems running kernels older than 4.5, which a lot of distros aren't on tip, so there's still the case that a lot of them are running prior to 4.5. Aren't on what, sorry? Uh, kernel version 4.5. No, no, you said most... Distros. Distros aren't on... Kernels tip? as new as 4.5. Oh, I thought you, I thought you said something else. Anyway, okay. Uh, and, and is what is the newest Linux kernel? Is it 4.5? That's a good question offhand. Um, Doing an episode on kernels, don't know the newest Linux kernel. They version. release pretty regularly, so, you know. So do I, but I can tell you my latest version, no. Um, well, 4.4 4 is the, the, the latest uh, LTS. I know that. So then... And I, think they're on re- 4.10, I think they're on 4.10 now, though. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. 
Now, when you go to update, and we might, I don't know, if you want to uh, tease this for later, that's fine. When you go to update a Linux kernel, is that something that you could just do, like, when you go to update the rest of the operating system, or is there a special thing that has to happen? Depends because... on your distro. Like, uh, if you're running Ubuntu, uh, you can run an app get that upgrade-y, and if there is an update for the kernel in the uh, main uh, Ubuntu repository, you will upgrade your kernel. And But why... Uh... What's special about Ubuntu over any other uh, Debian that you know would use app? Oh, again? Debian, Debian, same thing. Uh, same thing with uh, like Rel, CentOS, Fedora. So most but, of uh, them. Some of the uh, ones where they uh, pride themselves in giving the developer more control, like an Arch or a Gentoo, that's a bit more. You have to uh, go a little bit more out of your way to do so. Interesting. Is uh, it really the... a complex process that these more mature distributions have uh, automated, or is it just? Something that the other random guys, the also rands, haven't uh, haven't picked up on. It's really just a matter of preference. Some of these uh, uprings, uh, some of these distros, uh, they want to give the developer full control, so it's up to them to do it. As opposed to these ones that are used in more of these uh, enterprise situations, where it's a bit more managed by the companies, where they have official forks of the kernel, which are usually just uh, patches that eventually get submitted upstream. Sometimes they are using the actual uh, upstream kernel. Depending on the distro, like uh, CoreOS is very admin about running the actual Linux kernel. Anything they make into the patch, they make sure get, uh, any patches they make into their kernel, they make sure it gets into the actual Linux kernel. Interesting. Uh, but I understand wanting to give developers more control, and I also understand wanting to man- have more of a managed environment in an enterprise. But we're just talking about a command that runs something that isn't being... I like it. We're not forcing... It's not like Windows. It's not forcing your computer to upgrade. But wouldn't it be nice if maybe if you wanted to automatically upgrade your stuff? I don't know. Well, sure. Yeah. If you want to set up auto-updates, that's quite possible. Uh, but not in, fact, in, one of these dist- in one of these distributions that doesn't auto-update the kernel. Or it doesn't you allow could, you to auto-update Well, you kernel. could do that yourself. You set up a cron to do so. I mean, anything could be crawled. That's true. <laughs> or just set up a, hey, at boot, check if there's a new kernel version. If so, upgrade the kernel. I, but you said, I thought that you said upgrading the kernel was an involved process unless it's done by one of these. No, I didn't say it was involved. I just said it was manual. Oh. How manual is it? Sorry, well, how involved is it? You'd have to see, is there a new kernel available? If so, uh, depending on the distro, is there a pre-compiled one for this distro? Or do I have to build one from source? And then from there, uh, depending on uh, your OS, do you do some little magic partition swapping stuff? Or do you just say, hey, uh, load up all these kernel modules, and then anything that needs a reboot, uh, either say, hey, I need a reboot, or wait until I can reboot to load up the other modules that can't be loaded up dynamically, which these days there's very few that can't be loaded dynamically. Let's go back to this magic partition swapping stuff that you, you mentioned briefly. What, what is that? Does that allow you to basically hot reload a kernel while the computer is still so on? Or? It's more like a full distro upgrade that I'm thinking of. Uh, where I get this from is CoreOS does this uh, to do their auto-update. And it'll let you say, uh, hey, uh, partition A is running right now. That's the one that's booted. Uh, write all the updates to partition B, swap them out. It's also, uh, it's taken from Chrome OS, which was the original one to do this, uh, Google's Chromebooks, and it would uh, uh, run this protocol code Om- Omaha and pull all the updates it needs and then sw- uh, swap these partitions. Uh, thanks to the virtual file system, it would uh, be bootless. Bootless? Huh. Well, I-, I should say it doesn't need a reboot is what I meant. But, I mean, aren't there things that might require whatever we're getting off track anyway net to the next not github 
GitHub vulnerability of the week. Okay, 2017-8305. This is from the same place as the other one. Uh, the UDF client before 0.8.8. Well, that's your problem using beta software now. Um, UDF, not UDP. Uh, before 0.8.8 custom str uh, string L. L or an I? Uh, it's string L uh, copy L. implementation has a buffer overflow. UDF client string L copy is only used on systems with the C library, like glibc, that lacks its own strl copy. What is the L? Long? Yeah. Like, a, why does a long string need? Sorry, a no, it's function? not. No, it's not. Uh, L is um, special syscall. Um, trying to remember. Um, Uh, what is it? The, aud the audience isn't liking this. No. Oh, sorry. I'm trying to remember. Um... Anyway, so it has a buffer overflow. Size bounded string copying concatenation, or in concatenation. So it's a uh, size bound. You have your restricted size. That's the, uh, yeah. So, Next. Uh, this has, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Tyler. Next, that has a buffer overflow exploit. And what happens if you pass in a maliciously coded string? You can get it to, I'm sure, do stuff in your computer. That's like uh, Facebook and MySpace stuff. Next. All right. Backdoor. 2017-7720. Webcam backdoor. Back there's like, there's probably <laughs> a lot of videos with that title on the internet right now. <laughs> There's a giggity on the notes there's, there. There's webcam yeah. backdoors and backdoor webcams. Those are not the same thing. Um, CVE 2017, let's press on. 7720, buffer overflow. Another buffer overflow in private tunnel 2.7 and 2.8 that allows local attackers to cause a denial of service, SEH overwrite, or possibly have unspecified or other impact via a long password. What is private tunnel? It is a uh, form of uh, VPN. Okay. And that uses the TUN device uh, in Linux to uh, be able to uh, provide this private connection. Interesting. And so there's just a buffer overflow uh, vulnerability? Mm -hmm. What is an SEH overwrite? Uh, trying to remember. Uh... Uh, I remember SEH is structured exception handler. Um, so that okay. gets overridden. Next. Next. Uh, I think that's all of the webcam backdoor. I don't know why that one didn't that could have been so much better. I know. Um, <laughs> all right. 2017-8224. Wireless IP camera, uh, Wi-Fi cam devices have a backdoor root account that can be accessed with Telnet. And that sounds pretty self-explanatory. If you're using one of these wireless IP-based cameras, chances are there's a default password that you that uh, probably is never reset, or a type of authentication that really sucks and then can be easily bypassed. Well, clearly we should test it out just to make sure that they patched the fix. Well, no, it's probably that they <laughs> make sure they covered the back door. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> 
you know. That means two things. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is for the good old mankind here. <laughs> they did not properly uh, test their back door. We have so. to gotta, save the world. <laughs> gotta so, press yeah. on that back door. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's another good one. <laughs> <laughs> That one is also sexual. <laughs> yeah, that sounds. That was. Uh, I don't know what your audience is doing there, Eric. <laughs> uh, they're in a. There's a mirror behind us, uh, and so they can only. Uh, they're in an isolated room. That's how we're picking them up. You gave them a bunch of wine before the show so that they'd laugh more, and then now they've just started. I don't think so. Eric Did I give you guys a audience? bunch of wine before the show, everybody? Okay, maybe I did. Um, <laughs> all right, anyway. Did I, did I hear, like, change dropping the floor during that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that was... That's, uh, the, that's, the, that's the pull request after dark. Anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, when the lights go out, but the podcast keeps rolling. It's never mind. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. So, the... Uh, there's not really an, a, a nice easy transition into the into the big news story for this week though i think i think we all got a kick out of the whole news story the whole episode of news that we did last week even though there are other technology podcasts and even though they do talk about news and even though some of the stories that we talked about were a little let let's say not so fresh um i think that we were able to add i don't know a nice bit of insight into them and mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to listen to so. yeah don't don't listen to the other tech podcasts you can just keep your Device, your phone or radio device tuned to pull request. The sultry sounds of our voices. We're basically like last week tonight of pull request. You don't have to listen to all the other stuff. You just listen to us, and then you and all your friends can be sure that you know what's going on. Exactly. And this. uh, Sorry, none of us have an exaggerated British accent, though. We need a British guy. We yeah, do need a British it's guy. not an exaggerated British accent. If anything, it's been Eric. If you're not sitting down, you. you might want to sit down. We're replacing you with some British guy. Some British guy. I know a guy that can do a Scottish accent. Is that close nah, enough? Nah, it's not good for a whole half an hour. Anyway, yeah, that gets um, old after. Is five it minutes. offensive if he's not Scottish? <laughs> yes. Wait, anyway, do I do I know him? I feel like I know him. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Did you know that on phones, uh, there may be apps that use that have ports that they leave open and that aren't entirely secured? Which means, Can much like some of the exploits that we've already talked about and vulnerabilities that we've talked about, that they are rife for exploit. It was a bad word choice. Um, but leaving open <laughs> ports is something that <laughs> uh, is is nothing new. But a group of uh, security researchers, also undergraduate uh, computer science students, at the University of Michigan have uh, found something, some startling news. I need a cup of coffee or something. Have found some startling news about Android applications. Let's hear it from our news department. Nobody presents News to News. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Computer science researchers from the University of Michigan and Ann Arbor have found that hundreds of Android applications found on the Google Play Store have security holes that may allow attackers to steal your data and potentially infect your smartphone with malware. They developed a unique application analyzer called OP Analyzer 
and assess how each type of Android application utilizes the network, breaking them down into five distinct categories. After analyzing over 100,000 Android applications, they identified 410 of them as vulnerable, with up to 956 potential exploits. They manually confirmed the vulnerabilities for 57 applications, some very popular with up to 10 to 50 million downloads. What does this mean for computer security going forward? Only time will tell. And so many Americans are afraid of what happens next. We at least now the world still turns and the truth marches on. And that's why this has been News to Use. Brought to you by Pneumonium. 100,000 applications analyzed. I'm not surprised, honestly. But well, hold on. Here's here's what's interesting in the sensationalism of this news article: 100,000 Android applications analyzed, but 410 of them were found to be vulnerable. That's a pretty good. It's a pretty good slice. I'm sorry. It's pretty mm-hmm. good odds. That's fewer than one percent. Oh yeah, that's sure. So but I fewer, that's, that's four tenths of one percent. If I had to guess, they picked some like no-name developer ones that were were like, "Hey, why is port 3004 open?" Right. Why is port 8008 open? Oh. I'll wait Actually, for Tyler to get that joke. Anyway, uh, no. Th- there is I'm thinking about eight, it. 80,085 is also valid. And that means two things. Um, <clears throat> you guys are doing but, calculator jokes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, they said that, yeah, I'm sure some of them were no-name apps, and I'm sure some of them were, you know, apps that their friends made. But it said some of them were, you know, big, big uh, applications with 10 to 50 million downloads. So they probably threw in a Facebook or a YouTube I think a lot of people forget that Android is just another... Uh, okay, so it's Linux-based. It's basically it's Windows. Linux. It's basically... No, the it's, wi- no, no, no. It's, I, I know that it's Linux-based. I understand mm-hmm. that. I'm not saying. I'm saying metaphorically. The way that Windows was is to the PC space. Android is to the mobile space. It's not number one, but they yeah, say that you population can... Population-wise? Population, market share? Okay, just like Windows has the yeah. most. It's on the most amount of different makes and has the widest geographical use. When I say number one, I mean best, because you can't beat Mac OS. That, I wish somebody would, because it's not doing so well, but, you know... And uh, uh, Linux, aside from the fact that my desktop flickers when I'm on Hangouts, I, I would say has beat Mac OS. <laughs> In my opinion, I honestly like my work laptop much except, better than my Except that I have to literally hold the wires that keep my computer together. The Linux is great. I, uh, no, no. It's, it's just Hangouts flickers. Other than that, I upgraded to the latest kernel I could get, and I've been you happy know, ever since. Yeah, and you could build your own car, too, but is that the best way to go? I don't know. Honestly, if I got like a kit car, that'd be awesome. You have that's, and that's exa- yeah, and that's exactly what Linux is. It's like a kit car that you could build on yeah. your own. Windows is like a giant Hummer that you want, but then realize it's a giant mistake after you buy it. But then, yeah, you know, it's the biggest thing on the road, so screw no, everybody it, else. It's more like the moped. No. Nobody wants to see you on that. Whatever you, no. you do, do not buy your own. Do not build your own plane. Do not. That's just, Not yet. No. At least you do no. that on Top Gear. John anyway. Denver tried that. It did not turn out good. It, it, it's not good. Yes. We, we lose good people when they try to build their own planes. Anyway, my point of that <laughs> Android is the windows of smartphones is when you look at the, the way that it's being used, the type of 
uh, people that are using it. And when I say way that it's being used, it's also a way that allows you to have more control and more customization over your device uh, and has fewer restrictions on what you can put on it. That's why you can put almost anything, almost anything, on a Google Play Store. And if it won't get on the Google Play Store, then you can figure out how to sideload it onto your phone. That's not true. Is it almost? No, no. actually, getting on Google Play Store, it's, from a front-end perspective, I'd say it's less strict than uh, iOS, where it's like you have to follow their style guide and everything. Uh, but from a systems perspective, if anything, it's more strict because it's the fact that the, uh, a lot of the uh, security features in Android are just Linux features. And if you're a developer who's trying to do malicious things, you're probably on Linux, so you know this kind of stuff. Right, but... I mean... Oh, whatever. It's fine. Um, I think I'm losing my mind. No. Um, sorry, I've got a lot of a lot of tabs open, trying to move a bunch of stuff around. Um, anyway, um, a hundred. Oh, so with the uh, I'm losing it. I'm losing it, Christian. Uh, I think that's all that we have to talk about for the for the uh, for the app stuff, the Android app stuff. Um, I would agree because you know open ports. If your if your application is using a port, whether it's a desktop application or it's a mobile application. Uh, please make sure that you're using your internet connection or your network device judiciously. If these applications have an open port, now, I mean, is that really the application's problem? Is that something that the operating system really should be managing? Because it's, you know, it is kind of just a heavily abstracted API call to get something. Where, where is this irresponsibility taking place along the stack? Do you know, Christian? You're saying these open ports? Yeah. Because is it? It's well, not. I mean, I mean it's, it's so. I'd say it's the open ports are being used by the developers, but it really should be like. Uh, but I you're would not say, saying to. Uh, maybe you are saying to open this port and just listen for connections forever. But I mean, that that's something that would typically yeah, be abstracted but somewhere. That's something that I would also say. Really, uh, a part of it is uh, on really any uh, Unix-based system. You say, "Hey, I want to listen to this high number port." Uh, you, any user can do high number ports. So that's actually low number ports that uh, it can't. But I think no, I, I know that. But what I'm saying is, doesn't the operating system step in after a while and say, "Okay, let's you know, let's, let's no. close, let's close up shop." I guess not. No. But okay. Well, but what type of? Uh, I, I would say, uh, as part of like the checklist, to get into these stores. Maybe you'd be like, "Hey, I'm using these protocols, or even a custom one, and it needs to this port." If the port, and I would say that port should be one that does normally run over root, but it should be one that, hey, we're using TLS, we're, uh, like, there should be a checklist, like, if you are running uh, an open port, it should be one of these ports, it should be a known protocol, or you should have, a, a, to be able to submit documentation on your protocol to uh, getting through the store, I think is, like, really the only way to handle it if you're doing this Unix-based way of doing networking, which is how... All the mobile phones out there are Unix-based. You know, you got OS, you got iOS, or you got Android. Both of them are still using the uh, the Unix uh, ports uh, design there. And so these high high number user ports, if anything, are uh, a bit more detrimental. The other thing you could do though is give like an uh, application manifest with your app that uh, basically sets IP table rules when you install your app. I mean, you do have to give some kind of manifest when you submit it to the store anyway. Maybe. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Maybe you could include IP table rules in this. To say, that would not be a bad idea. But then, well, what only, do you? But so what happened? Well, I'm, I'm still only talk to this domain, or uh, which ah. would have to be an IP, which then would have to be dynamic. Unfortunately, unless you do have some kind of static IP, 
But so even maybe, if it's a static may, IP, as we said in an earlier... Maybe yeah. Android Whereas, needs some higher-level construct to say, do DNS resolution regularly to say, let me check what that IP address is, now update those IP table rules. So that way you can give a domain name and just say, hey, 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 periodically let me update DNS there and say, okay, now switch these IP table rules to allow this IP address. But you're saying to validate that only when the app is being approved. So if that changes... No, 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 then... no, no, no. I'm saying in use, using the IP oh, table rules. All of a uh, that would make says, sense. That would make sense, but what about fudging? Would that you prevent? Mean, you a, mean spoofing the IP address? Spoofing, yes. Wouldn't that? Wouldn't that prevent? Or would that? Would that? Would that prevent spoofing the IP address? No. no. Well, depending. Uh, if you're doing TCP, good luck. Uh, if you're doing UDP, honestly, I'd be kind of curious. Aside from DNS, why you'd be using UDP on a phone? Yeah, I don't know. But. Um, well, calls, that's, that's about it. Like, DNS and uh, VoIP is actually over UDP. Right. So if we had a we had some kind of voice calling app, and I said, let's open these ports for this transmission. Well, that's a standardized protocol, though, that it should be, hey, we're and it just never, this port. And it never clo- yeah, so what is it? It's just like, it's, it's, it's opening a port and then never closes it, and then also has a really bad way of interpreting the data that it receives... Well, Think, so of it, think of it from like a regular uh, server perspective. Uh, you, you have a server running some process, and it's like a, a, a app that you had, and you nmap it, and you're like, hey, why is port 8080 open? And you look, and it's like, oh, that's that application, and it's listening on any instead of uh, the private IP. Sorry, it's bound to any IP as opposed to the private IP, I should say. Okay. It's listening on 8080 no matter what. But the IP address that it's bound to would be 0.0.0.0. Anyway. I think I did an extra zero. But, yeah. What was your point? That That's basically what you're doing here is, hey, you've got an application running. It's on this port. And it's kind of just exposed to the world. Uh, your phone, if it's not connected to Wi-Fi, it just has the public IP that is uh, the one that you're using for your data plan. Yeah, but there's no way that your phone is is connected directly to the internet. It's got to be, be it's got to be behind your carrier's giant router or something like that. There's no yeah, way. But you know, who so else wait, is on you know, that though? I, I, a lot of people. Yeah. But, yeah, but they can't find my phone's IP address because that's a. That's You'd an be surprised. Internet. And I also, if you're surprised. on local Wi-Fi, it's even easier. In fact, uh, I'm, uh, it's very easy to say. Let me get all the IP addresses off of my uh, router here that I'm connected to. Is 107 a, uh, that's not a protected, uh, IP range, right? No, I guess that is a real, oh, it wouldn't be able to tell me that, never mind. Uh, anyway, um, right, so I guess our advice to wonderful app developers everywhere is, if you open a port, please remember to close it when you are supposed to close it. I, I only... wouldn't say that's the right advice. I'd no, say... what's the right advice? Either use, the right, use the right port for your protocols. You know, if you're doing HTTP, 8080, uh, sorry, 80 and 443, more so just 443, if anything. I, in fact, I think if you're doing HTTP, it does have to be HTTPS now on uh, mobile devices. And if you're doing other protocols, then I'd suggest that you handle it the same way. And I do think this idea of some dynamic IP table rules, well, it would kill the battery in a sense... Most likely, uh, certain phones you're doing you're do fine. Uh, certain phones would just die. That would be like that would probably be the ultimate way to fix it. Is just hey, update these IP tables rules and you're good. 
Interesting. Here, they made a website for this uh, type of attack. It says, vulnerable open port apps put the put device, not the device, under the threat of network attackers. Attacker can first scan his local network or even public IP addresses in the internet to discover hosts and then use MAC addresses, use the MAC address database to identify mobile devices. Once reachable mobile devices are selected, the attacker sends traffic to the port that belongs to the certain vulnerable app on these hosts, and vulnerabilities are exploited if vulnerable apps are running on those services. Sorry, running on those devices. For ethical concern, we only demonstrate the attack in the local network using our ARP scan to discover victims. Note the attacker can also use some tools as ZMAP to discover victims on the internet scale. Uh, and this uh, video that they have is showing how you can steal someone's photos uh, over the network using an open port. Photos are stolen from an SD card. Uh, huh. Yeah, attacker can steal all data from the victim's storage device remotely. Anyway. So, secure your stuff, is what we're saying. Alright. Now, to kernels. And we don't have a theme music for that. Um, Should have got some popcorn sound. No. <laughs> um, oh, right, because of the... I mean, of course, we could do some... Uh, we could reuse some NFL music. With the, uh... Anyway! No, that was actually from the wrong decade. Um, is that what you think NFL music is? It was from the 70s. Uh, I meant, sorry, here. <laughs> Tonight. I got, I got nothing. I don't actually watch football. There we go. Anyway, um... <laughs> that is not what you want happening on opening kickoff. <laughs> no. Uh, so let's get, let's get into kernels. Now, kernels are the centerpiece of any operating system. And uh, every operating system has them. They're different types of kernels. And they manage everything. I guess that's the best way to put it. Anything, any service, any sort of device on your computer, any service that is run by your computer eventually has to talk to the kernel. Uh, it acts as an interface between user applications and hardware. The sole aim of the kernel is to manage the communication between the software and the hardware. The main tasks of the kernel are process management, device management, memory management, interrupt handling, I.O. communication, file system management, etc. Is the Linux kernel is Linux a kernel or an operating system? Well, they're Linux, actually... Well, a, a kernel is an operating system. A kernel is an operating system. Well, I should say it is the bulk of an operating system. There are things built around it that give you... I think operating system is actually the more loosely used word than Linux here, if anything. I'd say Linux, the kernel, there's distros built around it. And then the loosely used word here is operating system, where some people call the operating system what the distro is, some people call the operating system what the kernel is. Interesting. Well, uh, in this case... This website, which is some random website, go4expert.com, but actually has a really nice article about this, um, says, basically an operating system is a kernel space and a user space. So I could see where it would just be the kernel because that, that does all the basic stuff for the operating system, but you do need your user space where all the stuff ha- you know, where all your stuff well, happens. Your user space is managed by the kernel, though. Everything is managed by the kernel. Exactly. Exactly. Is art design... Anyway, um, there, there, there are two types of kernels, monolithic kernels and, and microkernels. I feel like there's a third one, but maybe not. Well, there is now, but it's... So, uh, that's... Well, let's, let's start with a monolith. 
Uh, All right, but I do want to just say the the name of the third one. Which oh, what is, is the third the, one? It's called the Unikernel. I knew that's is, what it was. Yeah, which is the idea of actually compiling the kernel into your application, so that way your application runs with just parts of the kernel that it needs. And all you're running is your application as opposed to this whole operating system uh, or distro, however you want to view it, around it. But then you're kind of copying the kernel into all of the apps. So then yes, aren't the apps bigger? It, the, the, this is more for like uh, uh, one of the uh, classic uses uh, is a uh, uh, IoT device where all it needs to do is have one specific function. Okay, let's let's get back to that. Um because I didn't want to mention unikernel because then I would know I knew that it would go on to this rat hole anyway. Monolithic kernels. Uh, earlier in this type of kernel architecture, all the basic system services like process and memory management, interrupt handling, etc., were packaged into a single module in kernel space. This type of architecture led to some serious drawbacks, like the size of the kernel, which was huge. Poor maintainability, which means bug fixing or the addition of new features resulting in recompilation of the whole kernel, and that can consume hours. In a modern-day approach to monolithic architecture, the kernel consists of different modules which can be dynamically loaded and then unloaded. This modular approach allows an easy extension of the OS's capabilities. With this approach, maintainability of the kernel became very easy as only the concerned module needed to be unloaded and reloaded every time there is a change or bug fix. So, there's no need to recompile everything. Uh, Linux kernel follows the modular monolithic approach. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Microkernels. This architecture majorly caters to the problem of ever-growing kernels, or the ever-growing size of kernel code, which which we could not control in the monolithic approach. This architecture allows some basic services like device, driver management, protocol stack, file system, etc. to run in user space. This reduces the kernel's size and also increases the security and stability of the OS as we have the bare minimum code running in the kernel. So, so uh, I, I suppo- do want to say, wait, your favorite operating, operating system wait, 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 the wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. So if a basic service like networking crashes, it won't bring down the whole computer which was definitely a problem of many versions of Windows and old versions of Mac OS. Well, I'd say these days that's the case for even uh, some of the uh, uh, monolithic kernel architectures where you can still isolate it. It's just a matter of the architecture itself is different. And what I will say is current OS X is actually uh, kind of walks the line between the two of these where you have the monolith uh, being the, uh, Darwin, and then you have the proprietary OSX stuff being brought in that actually functions more like the microkernel architecture. Interesting. Interesting. And But Darwin is still, while it's open source, it's still uh, very much Apple. Yeah, it, it's still just within Apple. In fact, Darwin is a combination of the BSD kernel plus uh, uh, parts known as the mock kernel. M-A-C-H, which yes. is what? Uh, just the word mock itself, but that. Uh, t- but no, I meant, I meant no, I meant the mock kernel. W- what do you mean? It's uh, which is what it handles uh, the low level things like uh, device drivers, uh, the I/O ske- uh, management, uh, some of the process scheduling, uh, depending on what, uh, what we're talking about. Uh, if you're talking task scheduling, that's usually handled by BSD there. Uh, but some of these. So stuff just like called that- mock because it's fast. I guess that's what I was getting at. Okay. Is that a, that was a question? Is it, yes, is that I, I honestly don't know the origin of the name. I should have uh, looked that up anyway. Um, so there are many parts 
Uh, there, there are many things, and we've listed them, uh, or most of them, a couple times, um, that kernels deal with, like boot processes and schedulers and tasks. And is a scheduler part of a kernel? Yes. It uh, doesn't memory have to management be. is the memory is that part of the kernel? Yes, that is. All right, that, uh, that does file have to system be. management, uh, logic yes. volume managers, namespaces, C groups, protection rings uh, or com- uh, capabilities. Um, access control lists. All this type of stuff is managed by your particular kernel. Yes. Now, uh, all distributions of Linux, do they use the same kernel? How does that work? They use a either a fork of the kernel or the actual kernel, different versions of the kernel. So even though these widely, vastly different versions of Linux, you know, like BSD versus... Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Versus... BSD is not Linux. Oh, Unix, sorry. So okay, that was actually getting to my question. So where does the – is there a single source of truth for all kernels in the Unix environment, or is it only Linux kernels are kind of shared, Unix kernels do their own thing, or what? what is it? So it, it is uh, – Linux, it's based off of Unix in design, but it's not a Unix kernel. It did not start from Unix. And uh, a lot of the design principles came from Unix, though, and uh, Unix itself uh, – you had uh, what were called true uh, Unix OSs, which there is uh, the actual Unix. Uh, then there is a BSD. Uh, there's uh, still a bunch of uh, different uh, open source variations of BSD. Uh, Solaris is considered a tr- uh, true Unix operating system. Okay, so my, my point of, it, does BSD start with the same kernel that Solaris starts with, and then they adapt the changes to their distribution? I know they're not Linux, and I know you said specifically Linux, but that's why I'm asking. In the Unix world, do they share that at all? Or are there... What is it? They share bits and pieces. Are there guidelines that come from, like, the giant... The group? They're like, we want to do this in the next version well, of the Unix kernel, and then everybody agrees to do Unix, it? Or what is- there's no active development on the Unix kernel. <laughs> okay, so who figures out what, how, did it, how does it... How does the Unix kernel... There is no Unix kernel as a singular... Entity, I guess, is kind of a yeah intangible thing. There, it was a, U- so, Unix as a, as a singular entity was a research project that is no longer in existence. Seventies, sixties. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So if BSD wants to update their kernel and and uh, um, Sun wants to update their kernel, they do that completely autonomously. Sun. Com- it's uh, Oracle Ooh. now that says ah, which stuck in the it is EOL and it's now free BSD, open BSD, net BSD, but BSD itself, I don't think, is actively being worked you're, on. You're taking I, you're, the semantics are kind of eschewing my question. My question is, are they completely separate? They don't talk to each other. There's no relationship between the two. There, dis- there's there's shared logic. There's shared modules, but it, in itself, there is separate. They are separate development. Okay. Is now is that true for the Linux world? Linux is uh, independent of all these. They can share ideas, but the code itself is the Linux kernel code. And that does that come from the Linux Foundation? Does it come from like some centralized place that everybody adapts, or do they all no, agree it's on? Just a- it's open source, so just any one person who has code that gets accepted into the Linux kernel can develop on it. Okay. Is there a, a GitHub repo for the Linux kernel? There is. <laughs> if you, it's at Torvald slash Linux. Oh, man, that's really funny. That's, uh, I need to see the problem with my audience is that I have a problem, a problem uh, give, giving them signals, so I forgot that the... Uh, 
the funny the the funny um the funny the the funny signal is uh this one it's a uh... yeah anyway sorry um okay i'm not gonna i'll tell them to go home um all right so what ha- how do how do all of these people agree on what to implement on the next linux kernel uh through uh mailing lists is a big part of it and then pull requests yep he said it i uh, said it he said it um okay so they are collaborating and then they just kind of collectively decide on what to do and implement it for the various distri- distributions that they have yep. um now let's see. You have a lot of, you have a lot of topics listed on here. A lot of attributes, I should say, of kernels listed on here. How exactly do you want to dive into them? How do you want to talk about the Linux startup process? Uh, the boot process is when I can just give a general overview of, of like how it works. Okay, so the kernel right. manages the boot process. Well, no, it's part of the boot process. The boot All process right. itself is you, you hit a power, uh, you supply power to the uh, computer somehow, whether it's wake on land, uh, hitting a power button, plugging it directly in, something like that, which then goes through a series of uh, hardware switches to actually turn that uh, straight power into logic, which then uh, will initiate the BIOS, the BIOS being either uh, your plain BIOS or a UEFI BIOS, and uh, th- those can vary from the UEFI uh, BIOS is uh, essentially its own standalone operating system with its own internal bootloader and all sorts of uh, things in that nature. Or the, uh, a traditional BIOS is just a uh, simple algorithm that uh, either way, the, the goal is to just uh, lo- load uh, your bootloader, which in the case of Linux, uh, there's a few, but uh, you're most likely going to be loading in uh, Grub. Uh, you and, also uh, left out, by the way, uh, an important part of the BIOS, which is the power on self-test or post. It's not uh, really called posts anymore, true. but all modern computers is. will yell at you if they have a problem. <laughs> Mac o- Ma- Macintoshes have some kind of chime that they say when they're unhappy, and uh, other computers will just beep. But yes, that is an important part of the process, because you can't get to the bootloader if your components don't start, or if their components true. aren't working. Yep. And so that loads Grub traditionally in Linux, or more most commonly, I should say. And uh, then from Grub, that'll actually, uh, like, if you get to the Grub window, it says, hey, you're running multiple Linux distros, which one do you want to boot into? Or it'll just actually uh, load uh, uh, your one Linux distro if you have it, or one operating system. You can load uh, Windows from Grub, actually. Now, here's a question. In order, BIOSes have to have some kind of cursory knowledge of of the devices and the device drivers. Mm Mm-hmm. That that seems to be a relatively new construct because I you know it was a real it was a real task in the late nineties to get your computer to boot from a CD drive. It was a an even bigger sure. task a few years later to get your computer to boot from a flash drive. It still kind of is now. Sure, uh, older Macintoshes uh, can't boot from uh, USB. So what is it that allowed? There's usually an embedded uh, common uh, driver that is not a full featured driver for the device, but a uh, simple enough one for the BIOS to use it. Like but, for uh, Wake on LAN, it just needs a little something for the Ethernet card. It doesn't need the whole feature set. Uh, that That's a little more of an advanced one that can be particular. But for, say, like a, a CD-ROM or a RAID card, uh, for instance, those are a bit different where you do have this uh, very basic driver that uh, it's just, just actually loaded into the firmware itself that works for uh, BIOS, the BIOS level. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, for, uh, uh, so for, from the uh, bootloader, it'll actually start initiating the uh, boot process itself, which uh, will start out with, excuse me, uh, at the kernel phase, which uh, first thing is actually loading the kernel. So there's the base uh, kernel binary, which then loads its uh, dynamically linked modules. And once those are all loaded, it'll have its uh, drivers and uh, the uh, core logic of the kernel itself. And then it begins its startup phase, which is uh, generally calling the init RAMFS, which that exists as it, it creates a RAM disk uh, in memory. And that Why? is there to actually mount your rootFS. So this is, this is really building complexity from simplicity, where everything kind of bootstraps a slightly slight slightly bigger thing onto it which then bootstraps a, another slightly bigger thing onto that and through all these handoffs you get into a big kernel into a giant file system into a real operating system but you start mm-hmm. with like a really small bootloader you know that you have to really small uh it, is it so it does load the kernel first is that what it does or what is it yep it yeah, loads kernel the kernel lo- first, but then that loads something else that loads, like, a bigger kernel? Well, you have an init ramfs, which uh, can be just a shell script that's embedded into the kernel itself. Why that it do calls. that? That seems so unnecessary. You have to. There's really no other way to do it. There was uh, init ram disk prior to that, but all it is is saying, hey, I've got this fake rootfs that exists entirely in memory. Uh, you, uh, in the Linux world, it's usually embed busybox, and then here's all this stuff that I can use with it. Uh, and then uh, Chorus, uh, for instance, took it a step further and said, embed this Go binary that uh, replaces that, and uh, along with that, this JSON file that you define, and tell me how I want uh, to have my uh, rootfs look. Interesting. So, so it's, a, that, it's, it's a bootstrapping file system, essentially, to, before it loads your yes. real file system. Yes. Interesting. And then with the initRamFS, it'll boot your, uh, it'll mount uh, whatever uh, actual file system you have on disk, whether it's uh, XFS, ButterFS, ZFS, EXT4FS, anything that supports uh, Linux in this particular situation that I'm describing. And then that'll actually uh, be mounted into the virtual file system, uh, which is part of the kernel. And once the init ramfs is completed, uh, there is a uh, kexec called uh, to PID1, which is your init system. And uh, so there's. Uh, All right, let's the let's older... take a step. Let's take a step back because I think you almost lost me. Breathe. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so Christian's going to turn this podcast into something that boots a computer. Um, uh, okay, so let let's let's. I don't, I don't even know exactly where to go back. All right, so we have we have the bootloader loads the kernel, loads. Mm-hmm a very rudimentary file system as a RAM disk. That figures out the more complex file system that you have and some more complex services to start, and then no, loads those in a RAM and starts. just says, I, w- I need to run this series of commands to load up my root file system, and once I complete, the kernel will then execute your init system. Okay. And then, uh, and, and then the kernel, everything it executes then goes through the kernel's scheduler. Right. Correct. All, well, all execution is managed in uh, the kernel scheduler. Uh, but that's not is actually. But saying, that doesn't come up until after the the RAM disk is done. Right. Okay. So that's so that's still being managed by the the kernel itself. It's just saying, I uh, it, it, that's usually done in series, so it's not dealing with any concurrency. So it's pretty simple to say, just run these processes in series, 
and then once that completes, then I have an actual process to create as opposed to... Uh, there are processes, technically, uh, be, uh, running in the uh, uh, kernel, and the kernel does schedule these. And kexec says, I, I need to execute this uh, process with special privileges, which is PID1. PID1 has uh, the special privileges that other processes do not have. Gotcha. And now let's save the, the privilege capability security stuff for a little further on. Um, but, okay, scheduling. So there are different types of schedule, schedulers. And uh, is there's the completely fair scheduler. Is that, is that the most used one, the most popular one that, right now? Or that is, It's not that it's the most popular. It is the default scheduler within Linux. It, okay. And uh, when you talk about multitasking and you talk about, like, you know, uh, time-based multitasking or preemptive multitasking, that's all handled by the scheduler. Correct. Okay. Um, So the completely fair schedule, there was a process schedule which was merged into the 2.6.23, that's October 2007 for those of you at home, release of the Linux kernel and is the default scheduler. I can't say that word right. Look at that. Uh, it handles CPU resource allocation for executing processes, aims to maximize overall CPU utilization while also maximizing inter- interactive performance. What is fair scheduling? So fair scheduling is the idea of you have a queue, which uh, is, in this particular case is represented with a red-black tree, which is a type of binary tree that uses what's known as the red-black algorithm to balance it. And then for each process that, uh, that gets scheduled onto the, uh, a, process, uh, a CPU core, uh, it is the size of the queue divided by the time it was wait, uh, the, the, the process was waiting. Is so the all processes that, have an equal Sorry, the time, time that the process was waiting divided by the size of the queue, I should say, is the amount of time that the process gets to run on that particular core. Right, but it's a very fair division, so all the processes get equal time. Okay. Um, roughly. In an roughly, ideal world, right. yes. In contrast to the previous Order 1 scheduler used in older Linux kernels, the CFS scheduler implementation is not based on run queues. Oh, sorry, Christian. Instead, a... Oh, wait, you said red-black tree. Implements a timeline yes. of future task execution. Uh, what's a red-black tree? I should know this. It's not a binary I, I just, tree. Oh, it is. I said it, it is a self-balancing it's a binary, binary tree that uses a red-black, uh, the red-black algorithm to balance itself. Balances itself. Oh, extra bit. Each node of the binary tree has an extra bit, and that bit is often interpreted as the color, red or black, of the node. Interesting. Yep. So you balance it based on basically like a parity bit. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so the previous scheduler, before the completely fair scheduler, just had a queue of things to run, and you just added stuff to the queue, and it pulled it off. Pulled it off. Yep. Um, okay. Um, like the old oh, ones, and then in, in, in that case, and any task would take as long as it would supposed to take until it until it's done, which could eat up your whole system. Well, um, uh, prior to that, too, uh, multitasking wasn't such a thing. It wasn't so much of a thing. So if you did have long running processes, uh, it would generally be uh, not the scheduler's job, but like uh, say uh, that there is a max time within the kernel, or uh, you yourself told the process to sleep. Yes, and I am not a fan of multitasking. That's why I use the simple finder. <laughs> and actually, there was a simple finder that only allowed you to do a few things on macOS. Um, anyway, 
Uh, like the run queue based scheduler, uh, CFS uses a concept called sleeper fairness, which considers sleeping or waiting tasks equivalent to those on the run queue. This means that interactive tasks would spend most of their time waiting for the user input or other events gets a comparably or get a comparable share of the CPU time when they need it. Let's consider sleeping or waking tasks. So if it's using if it's waiting for a keyboard, then the scheduler will put it to sleep. But then will it give the time back that it took when it wakes it up? Is that what that is? Uh, essentially, uh, yes. When okay. it, so, so we're uh, saying, I like, we're, your slice is... Wait, 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 I just, so uh, you're saying, okay, your slice, program A, your slice is five seconds, and you, we, uh, I see that you want a keyboard input, so we're going to let you run for four seconds, but then when you wake up, we'll give you those, we'll give you that extra time back. Except then you get into details like, is this a blocking syscall, or are you doing an event-based I.O. there to actually say, uh, only on the event that uh, the key is pressed, then uh, wake the process up, because there are certain syscalls where you say, just wait and be on the uh, processor the entire time that you're waiting. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, all right. So that's scheduling. Uh, let's see. Uh, scheduling threads and processes. Um... I don't think we've ever, I don't, you know, we've talked, we talk about this all the time, but I don't think we've ever really kind of uh, differentiated between them. What is a thread versus what is a process? So I think the best way to look at this is through like the old uh, equilateral. Is it a square uh, or a rectangle? Uh, hold no. up, I'm getting to no, it. No, 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 no. Equal, the equilateral uh, diagram where you have tasks, think of that as the equilateral, and then threads are the rhombus and processes are the rectangle. And uh, with that, um, yeah, uh, the uh, th- uh, threads are lightweight, and uh, th- they're very similar to a process, except processes have all the resources uh, recollected when they are done. Threads, on the other hand, it's all um, manually done by the program itself to actually do this. And thread memory, ma- uh, threads have a, uh, it's actually essentially the same uh, memory scape, but threads are also do not have the ability to uh, isolate memory like you can with processes. While you can share pro- uh, process memory, uh, threads by default will always share uh, memory, but processes won't unless you pass in certain flags to say share memory. And th- uh, th- uh, threads that do not get a PID allocated to, the, uh, uh, to them in user space, uh, but they are essentially at uh, at its at the core, they are just a task that are being scheduled. So in the ske- scheduler's eye, they just look like anything. They are just con- uh, these execution contexts that can run uh, uh, independent of each other. But processes also have all these other things built around them that that are, exist in the kernel to clean themselves uh, up. Well, uh, threads you need to in user space say uh, release this resource when this thread is done. Gotcha. And processes can have threads. Threads can't have processes. That's kind of the relationship. Right. A thread but must pro- have a process have tra- to execute. Th- 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 so the the one little uh, semantical gray area there would be the fact that uh, processes have child pro- can have child processes. And I'm just going to ask, what is the difference between like a child process and a thread? So a child Other than process, the, how the memory is kind of allocated in the that so, stuff. Well, that so that. Mm. Is, is that, that actually uh, the difference, though? Is that, the, depends, is that the only It depends difference? on if you're using shared memory across processes or not. If you are, then it is uh, very similar. It's a matter of the kernel will still reclaim all the resources being used by the child process as opposed to a thread. 
but a, a thread can be a, within a process managing its child pro- the processes uh, child processes, uh, but a uh, you don't really have direct control of the child threads that uh, is being handled by the child process. Gotcha. And, and, and yeah. what is a, a POSIX thread? P-O-S-I-X. So, POSIX is probably the uh, most common uh, API to create threads. Because what threads is POSIX? Are, POSIX is... Uh, i trying to remember what that actually stands for. Like portable operating system interface. And then X because Unix. Very good. That's exactly what it is. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay. A plus. What is it? So it's a uh, a- API for uh, user space threading that uh, it because uh, it's under the hood actually using the clone syscall, and then POSIX also has all these other things around it to say uh, allocate the certain amount of memory in the page tables and uh, yada yada yada. <laughs> but uh, now it's um it, essentially it's just uh, to do it. There's no real definitive way to create a thread. So POSIX is a uh, standardized API to say, here is a way to create a thread, uh, as opposed to uh, doing this much lower level, uh, I need, because uh, normally you're saying, I just need a execution context, and it is a thread because it's in user space, and I have this much memory, and POSIX manages to wrap that into, like, several functions. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, uh, so we've talked about boot process, schedulers, tasks, uh, virtual memory. Is that like virtual reality? No. No. It's not. So you have your physical memory, which are your, uh, I don't know, like in my MacBook Pro, I have 16 gigs of physical memory. But virtual memory, you have uh, uh, virtually endless amounts of memory. And where is that memory stored? That's done through page tables in the kernel. And that is stored where? This is, it it is stored in memory. uh, On uh, the... Disk. On the what stored on it? Virtual memory is stored on a disk, mm, isn't it? No, no. You're thinking a swap. I thought, I thought that was virtual memory. No, virtual memory is the idea of multiplexing physical memory. Uh, you're thinking no, but a swap. I thought it was like when you run out of physical memory, then you could use this. That swap. Not on Windows. No, it is. Since virtual memory itself Windows, is. Eric? <laughs> virtual memory is the kernel saying, "I have this ad- a physical address space that maps to all of these at- uh, virtual uh, address spaces," and then in user space, you're using these virtual address spaces. So then, why have virtual memory? So that way you have much more memory to be able to be used by your processes. Otherwise, you're only running uh, 16 gigs of memory, and then you top out. With virtual memory, you can uh, you're running a lot more, uh, using a lot more memory, uh, in a sense. But uh, it's only a actual. There's only a small amount of that actually being used at a time. So when a process is active, it's uh, it's alive. It's using that memory, and then any process that is uh, currently sleeping, uh, not executing, its memory is not actually loaded into the physical memory. I'm confused. Where if you if it's where is the extra space? You can only have uh, if it's not on your disk. Where is it? It's not on disk. It's in your memory, and it's not that it's using extra space. It's just reusing uh, the space that already exists. So it's like a form of compression. No, 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 no. Multiplexing. So think of it. It's like scheduling. 
in a sense. It's it's like how you share the it, like think of a, a single core CPU is being shared amongst multiple processes. Uh huh. Likewise, so with you memory. have this single type of you have this single bit of memory that's being shared across multiple processes. Single uh, address space. Yes. You you have an address space that has some content that the computer figures out is actually shareable. Confuses me. No, too. Not exactly. It, it's the fact that you have a physical address space that maps to a certain page table. Uh, sorry, you have a page table that maps a certain virtual address space to a physical uh, All right, hold on, hold on. address space. Now, what is a memory page? A memory page is just this, t- uh, well, page table, I should say. Yeah, a memory page is a block of memory. But a page table is what's actually doing the logic there to say that this virtual address space maps to this physical address space. Okay. And that's being done in the kernel there. And then you have uh, the the uh, the kernel itself does the, these algorithms to reclaim these page tables once processes uh, no longer being executed. So that way, it's not uh, just being used over and over again. You ha- uh, th- this is done by what's called the paging supervisor that's actually uh, managing these page tables. I gotcha, but I still don't understand how the same bit of memory could be used. How it's it not may- being used at the same time. It's being shared. Like think of it like a time across share. what. If you have like t- if you have if you have a bunch of programs loaded on your computer, and then yeah. it's, it's not it's sharing only, memory but, between the programs. Yeah, it's only being shared, but the only the currently executing process is actually running in uh, has the memory loaded into the physical uh, address space, while the virtual address space is uh, uh, just being used. The page table keeps reference. How but does not it know how to multiplex this data together? Through the page table and the page supervisor. And how does it figure out that this data needs to be combined with some other data? Because it's the same? Uh, and then it says, I, like, I, these two... What do you mean combined with other data? I don't, I don't get how you, how you multiplex this data to create more... Like, so, I, I guess, address, I guess address, it's just, like, mat- uh, matching, address. Address content, uh, matching contents and address spaces. So it's like if address space A has the same content as address space B, then you can say, no, oh, that, actually, that, these that, are the same. Else. That's, that's is KSM. This, is this RAM or is this memory memory? This is RAM, which is memory. Oh, you, I see I how that can the work then, because they're like, yeah, that, it's, it's just currently not processing all those processes. I see how that could work. Right. Yeah. So the page table itself, uh, it's not yeah, page tables per process. Memory, it's processing stuff. Oh, well, well. So just moving so stuff in and out have, of memory. Let me let me put it this way. You think of it: physical address space zero, and then you have several processes. They each have. Uh, let's keep it just for an unrealistically simple case. You have one page table per process. So uh, in process A, the, the uh, page table, its page table says have uh, an int of uh, one point uh, to that physical address space. Uh, page table uh, for this uh, process B says have an int of three pr- uh, points to that address space. And then uh, for the next topic uh, to lead into uh, KSM, let's have process C say have an int of, uh, uh, of one point to that address space. Now, when A is running, the, the thing in physical memory is the, uh, this, um, this int of one. And when B is running... It's an int of three, but then when C is running, it's an int of one, and then through KSM, which I think is what Eric was thinking of, that'll actually say, "Hey, these two page tables are the same. Let's merge them." And then um, that is that- yeah okay. So that's that's kernel same page t- name merging. Yes. Okay, that's KSM, not Khalid Sheikh Muhammad. Um, <laughs> it was close. That's though. another KSM. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Uh, 
Okay, so... So then I don't I don't get what memory what virtual memory is. I'm I'm, I'm It's what you so use. So then I'll, I'll let, I think, it just I think Eric that like the amount like so you have four gigs that that's like how much power it has to give, but like that doesn't mean how many different things it can process at one time. So can does, I have, like, does the ten virtual memory things, just cycle stuff in and out of the swap space? Is that what it is? I'm no. No 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 no. It's not what it's it is. It's the fact that you have it, you have in your kernel memory space there is this concept of page tables. Wait, wait, is it so all the references space. could be the same, but then the kernel manages where that actually goes? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think you have it reversed. It's that the references, uh, the references in virtual memory can be different, and they can all go to the same physical address. Wait. Can we go next? No, the so the programs address. request this. It's that the programs request the same location of memory, but then it actually goes to a different address physically, because it's virtualized. No, that's the reverse. Uh, why is it the reverse? <laughs> All right, uh, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> okay, next time. All right. Um, all right, after virtual memory, uh, we've got all these file systems. Yeah, which uh, let's start with the, uh, the one that's at the, uh, on the surface, the virtual file system, which is just the one that you actually deal with in user space, where you have your uh, blocks and uh, uh, and then you have inodes, and then you have the files that are made up of inodes. And so, uh, yeah, fi- files can be anything from a plain file uh, to a directory, and uh, there's a few other special ones in there, like devices and uh, uh, blocks themselves. And so then you have devices and blocks can be mounted, and within there you have these inodes, which are essentially a tree of, da- uh, of data. You have a t- uh, each file. You have a t- uh, at its first layer, you have a root inode that is the file disc- that ends up working as the file descriptor and has all of its uh, the basic info on the file, and that points to uh, uh, twelve what are called direct nodes that contain uh, data, and then uh, three indirect nodes that can point to uh, either uh, Where data do these numbers or come more from? inodes. These are just the set numbers in the uh, the kernel. This is how uh, inodes are designed. What is an inode? An inode uh, is uh, a uh, essentially a pointer in a tree to uh, data of a file. And why are there these twelve three? They multiples so the, of three. The twelve hold actual data. And then you have three indirect that, think of it this way, uh, when you go to write to an actual disk, uh, particularly on a spinning disk, you, mm-hmm. uh, you're not always writing to that same exact spot. You're going to be writing in a further po- uh, point in the disk. Right. And to be able to uh, point to that, you have these indirect ones saying, okay, I have these inodes over here that uh, c- contain this data. So that way, uh, you're uh, traversing a tree instead of having to actually do this uh, lookup. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, virtual file systems have other uses because you could also use them to bridge the gaps between, uh, let's say, you know, like, uh, uh, like you know. Sorry, I need to. I'm not having a good day today. Um, you know, it can be used to, br- to, to bridge gaps between other proprietary file systems. Like, if you needed something that could read both NTFS and HFS plus, right? You could use a virtualized file and- system. A good example is all the file systems that are supported by Linux, whether it be ButterFS is the new hot thing, XFS, EXT4FS, But not ZFS, the two that I named. AFS. Sorry, say that again? I said not the two that I named, NTFS and HFS+. Plus. Right. Not out Those of the box, at least. Proprietary, proprietary. Although NTFS, you can use, uh, what is that, Samba, Samba, something like that? Samba is for networking. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, but like uh, for NFS and uh, NTFS. No, NFS, no, that, no, no. Samba is for NFS. It's NFS to NTFS, though. It's no, but uh, you're right. No, no, no. But it's not. You can't mount an N- NTFS disk with Samba. That's just for networking. No, but a NTFS <clears throat> file system can mount to you with Samba. Yes, if, if you, you share it over a network. If you're running a, if you're running a, uh, uh, say you have a uh, sandbox. If you're running and, uh, a Windows computer, you can you see your NTFS volume over your Linux over from your Linux. No, computer no, no. It's not an NTFS network. volume there. It's that you have your NTFS drive that's mounted into your uh, Windows machine that then is trying to access a uh, say a, a NAS unit or a SAN unit. And that happens to be running uh, Samba uh, because it's a Linux machine that uh, uh, send unit. Right. And Samba the, networking Windows, not yes. file system type. It's to you allow a. It's allow. It's to allow a uh, local Linux disk be mounted into a Windows system. Samba. Yes. Over NFS. The other way around. No. Well, Man, technically, that's... when you do mount it, you can read and write uh, in either direction. So, gotcha. So, all these file systems. Um, why did why why would you want to use XFS over ZFS over AUFS? So, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, some of them are copy and write. Some of them aren't. Uh, some of them don't have journaling. Some of them do. Some of them uh, structure their trees differently. Why would you want that doesn't have journaling this day and age? Uh, you'd want that. <laughs> Which is why certain older files doesn't aren't have journaling. Anymore. Really? What? Doesn't have journaling? No, you, that do. That's what I said. I said, why would you want something that doesn't have journaling in this day and age? You you don't. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying that's why there's older ones that existed that were supported, but oh, uh, you no longer oh, want to yeah, use. Yeah, yeah. But like, so ButterFS is this uh, really uh, hot new one that does copy on write. It has this hot concept smooth, of subvolumes. Like what? Butter. I said it's hot what? and smooth. It's hot and smooth, like butter. Yes. Yes, it is. And uh, so, that one, uh, so that one has the, uh, the things like subvolumes, which are great for containers. Uh, similarly, AUFS is uh, the classic Docker file system that does these layers, and they can be sh- uh, shared amongst different containers in the mount namespace. And uh, so, uh, similarly, like th- there's some more basic ones like ext 4 fs is uh, your more traditional Ubuntu file system. XFS has uh, some uh, read and write optimizations, but it is still uh, not as fancy as like uh, ZFS was kind of like a, lo- a lot of its features were moved over to ButterFS. ZFS originated actually in the, the world of FreeBSD. Is there really a? I wish there were some kind of chart of like the best file system to use for whatever distro because this is really. Could, uh, almost I, bet, as, I bet there's something as, out there that says like, "Hey, this file system has these features, and this file system has these, etc." I'd hope so because this is almost as overwhelming as learning a, starting a JavaScript project in 2017. The amount of differences of like, well, do I? I don't really know if I'm going to want AUFS over ZFS for my well, you know, basically, look at it as ButterFS has a lot of these cool features, but it's not stable. And then why else would there, anybody, like your standard be... Ubuntu user, why would they want anything over EXT4, which is the for, new standard? Well, like uh, I, I run EXT4, but on LVM, so I have these logical uh, volumes that uh, are actually the things being uh, written to. And those can be resized easily, and uh, aren't, those can... aren't most things logical volumes these days. Yes, but you can also just say, "I just want ext four on my entire uh, drive, and I don't want to resize it ever." What um, would be the well, advantage a... of an illogical volume? 
You mean just running EXT4 or something like that? Where the, the whole drive is one giant partition that you can't do It saves with. a little space, basically. A very little space. Yeah, it's negligible. Um, totally worth it. So, no, but again, why would you want to not... Why would you want anything more than an EXT4 for a standard Linux use? Or like, you know, your standard uh, copy Ubuntu and write person. can be pretty useful where if you have uh, this, uh, basically the same uh, blocks of data, they're being shared on the FOSS system until uh, they change, and at which point then there is a new one actually being a, a new inode is created as opposed to sharing this inode. And uh, uh, similarly, uh, that can be done through layers where you have the entire file system, uh, each version is a new layer. And then uh, you uh, say you're doing this through um, your uh, namespacing out your mount namespace. To, uh, for the, the example, there is containers, and this is the uh, AUFS is the one I'm talking about with layers. It's the default uh, Docker uh, file system, actually, is AUFS. And with that, you can say image of uh, my Redis image shares the Debian layer, which is being shared by my uh, node container. So they both share in the Debian layer instead of uh, having. Uh, two entire Debian environments on disk. Gotcha. But if anything like that were really cool enough, wouldn't it just eventually make its way into EXT4? Into your standard use for consumers? No, because it's no? not necessarily the use cases that EXT4 is being built for. I'd like to think that a lot of people would like copy on write. Yeah, which is why uh, Butter Butterfest is being uh, developed. That's why ZFS No, but I'm saying like, for something like, like that, you know... Why can't you just add that to EXT4? Because that's the default. Because that's not something that they're deciding to do. They don't agree with that. They, as in uh, Linux. The developers who work on it. Oh, the, okay. Linus said um, no. Next. Jeez. Jeez, <laughs> Tyler. I'm getting cranky. Um, namespaces. I'm just trying to keep the we show talk, moving. We just, talked about, we just talked about namespaces. Namespaces Wait. are a feature of the Linux kernel that isolate and virtualize system resources as a collection of processes. Examples of resources that can be virtualized include process IDs, host names, user IDs, network access, interprocess communication, and file systems. Namespaces are a fundamental aspect of containers on Linux. Mm hmm. So your namespaces. Uh, so this is probably one of the more simple constructs uh, of, uh, in the, um, the kernel. This is to say, I have a, a certain process or uh, uh, just a certain execution context that I want to run isolated from uh, uh, the... Mark in your territory, uh, basically. Uh, more so saying, uh, not really marking it so much as saying, I uh, I have this... I don't want this thing to know what PID1 is, is a good example to say. Uh, I'm running a process that it doesn't need to know what PID1 is, or I don't want it to know what PID1 is. Or I want to be able to package up just a certain process, so that way I can just uh, basically uh, essentially throw around that process to different uh, servers. That's so a very scoping, common use. I guess. Yeah, scoping, okay. packaging, gotcha. uh, portability. Hence namespaces. That makes sense. You use namespaces in code and elsewhere all the time. All right. Uh, next is uh, C groups. What is a C group? So C- wait, C hold on. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. Don't tell me. Wait, wait. Don't tell me. It is a. Linux kernel feature that limits or accounts for and isolates the resource resource usage, uh, CPU, memory, disk, I/O, network, etc., of a collection of processes. Engineers at Google started work on the feature in 2006 under the name Process Containers. In late 07, the nomenclature changed to Control Groups to avoid confusion uh, caused by the multiple meanings of the term container. Uh, okay. 
So C groups or control groups is uh, quotas, basically, for processes in the kernel. Qu quotas set by the kernel for processes. Sorry, I uh, got I got omed, uh, but I'm back. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't notice a difference. Um, C groups. They're uh, just quotas for processes established by the qu the kernel, or, or what is it? So you have uh, two things. You have quotas, which are saying I need this pro this process for groups of process uh, must have these resources, these resources, or it is to do uh, shares to say, give me a, uh, a certain percentage, uh, and then the, uh, if I can go over, uh, if I'm not contested by other processes. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, and then. Uh... Uh, uh, privileges, uh, protection rings, and capability-based security. A lot of the stuff that we've talked about tonight are about the Linux kernel, and we've kind of left out the Windows kernel because it sucks. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Um, but seriously, the, Linux, the window, Windows kernel has gone through uh, quite a large evolution over the last 20, 30 years. And it used to have this thing called rings, where each type of, of privilege was within a ring, and uh, the root was ring zero, and it fanned out into ring one, ring two, ring three. Um, so they're, they're called hierarchical protection domains, or rings. Uh, mechanisms to protect data and functionality from faults and malicious behavior, uh, or and malicious behavior. This approach is diametrically opposite to that of capability-based security. So what would happen is, on early Windows, you could say like the graphics driver, the graphics library was in ring zero because everything, because it just had to address the hardware directly and didn't really. I don't want to. I don't know if it was for convenience or it was because of resource restriction. They didn't really want to have a more robust system of drawing stuff on the screen, so they just kind of dumped it out into the... <clears throat> just wrote it onto the hardware, which required a higher level of privileges than uh, programs typically would have. Uh, and then because you do that, that, of course, increases the risk for security exploits and your computer to crash and things to go wrong because if something in ring zero has a, has a problem, and it's basically... Just, I, I, I am really off the metaphors today. I don't know. I was trying to not think of something too explicit, but um, yeah, it's not good. Um, let's see. Special gates between rings are provided to allow an outer ring to access an inner ring's resources in a predefined manner. Giggity. Not sexual, yeah. As opposed to arbitrarily <laughs> allowing usage. Correctly, get, correctly gating access between rings can improve security by preventing programs from one ring or privilege level from misusing resources intended for another. For example, spyware running as a user program in Ring 3 could be, should be prevented from turning on a web camera without informing the user, since hardware access should be a Ring 1 function used for device drivers. Programs such as web browsers running in higher numbered rings must request access to the network, a resource restricted to a lower number ring. That is, as it said, diametrically opposed to the capability-based security, which I'm adding to. Uh, where is it? I just add it up. Um, is, what is it? What is capability-based security, Christian? Capability-based uh, uh, security is, say, I have a, pr uh, 
um, certain namespace process or uh, uh, user in certain cases that um, can do certain things and can, can't do certain things. So it's like saying, uh, I think uh, the uh, basic one that isn't really uh, explicitly a, a capability, but it is the same practice as to say, do I have read-write to this file or do I have can I execute it, which is uh, using capabilities under the hood, actually, to do so. But uh, another one is to say, can I uh, have access to a network interface, yes or no? And that's capability. Gotcha. And that's very similar to the ring negotiation that we talked about, except that this is much more robust and probably much In, in fact, if you want to see uh, capabilities in action to really lock things down, I suggest people go to contained.af, and it is uh, a, a particular developer who oh, has a lot of experience this. with containers. Uh, they, they made this website that uh, essentially you have a WebSocket session to a bash uh, running in a container, but it is locked down completely, and that's all thanks to Linux capabilities that you just can't really do anything in the now, container. Now, I thought you were actually able to break out. You figured out how to get out of the container. No, but I don't you, know can, if I just know. You, you can give them a lot of crap about it by uh, <laughs> catting, catting dev you random into uh, random files. <laughs> is that... Um, uh, we'll get into that later. A capability is defined to be a protected object reference, which, by virtue of its possession by a user process, grants that process the capability, hence the name, to interact with an object in certain ways. Those ways might include reading data associated with an object, modifying the object, executing the data in the object as a process, and other conceivable access rights. The capability logically consists of a reference that uniquely identifies a particular object and a set of one or more of these rights. And you just gave a great example, which is, can I read-write into this file? And when you open a handler to, uh, for that read-write um, privilege, you get... Uh, you get a variable, and that variable is a reference, which uh, is the index of a file descriptor in the process's file descriptor table. This file descriptor is a capability. Uh, its existence in the process's file descriptor table is sufficient to, no uh, not, uh, sufficient to know that the process does indeed have legitimate access to the object. Interesting. Um, that seems much more straightforward than these rings. I don't know yep. who thought of these rings. <laughs> Some Windows developer. <laughs> yeah, it's like basically, that's uh, like, I totally, this is much easier to understand than the, okay, you get a descriptor, and if that's in the table of the things that can access this file, then it can, and if it's not, then it can't. Not this, well, ring one has to hand off to ring two unless it's asked by ring three. Anyway. Um... Going down, 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 do the <laughs> ring of fire. Um, Capability-based security. Um, related are access control lists. Um, access control lists are just a list of things that can access this, but that's not necessarily the same as a capability, although I feel like it could be somehow. Uh, an ACL can use uh, capabilities okay. uh, to, to be, uh, enforce itself. And uh, but uh, sim also similarly related is SE Linux and App Armor. SE Linux is a way of labeling saying I have an SE Linux user uh, A, and then say that uh, only uh, users of type A can uh, uh, use a certain uh, capability with uh, SE Linux. Now is SE Linux? That's a it's an entirely different distro. It's its, a, its own distro. Of no, Linux? it's not a distro. It's a kernel it's an module. Add -on or? 
It's a what, sorry? It's a kernel module that some distros have, some distros don't, and you can add it. And a lot of people definitely uh, complain about it uh, because it makes a lot of things difficult. Like what? Which I think is just security in general. It makes things difficult, which is part of its job. Right. A lot of people don't like having to enter their password after a screensaver. So they make their computer less secure. That's not the solution. Um, all right, but would you advocate people to use SC Linux? Uh, certainly for uh, server situations, yes. Uh, it might is be a little one... overkill. For oh, sorry, a, I, mean, I wouldn't say it's actually overkill, but uh, if you're just using like a... a uh, Chrome OS. Actually, I think Chrome OS has like a really uh, advanced uh, abstraction around uh, SE Linux that makes it hmm. pretty easy. But um, if you're just running, uh, a bu- particularly getting it set up on Ubuntu, it's not exactly easy. But uh, Core OS and uh, Red Hat are the uh, biggest uh, contributors to it. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, they hired the guy who originally created SE Linux over at the NSA, and now he works for Red Hat. Oh, that's cool. Um... Let's see. Uh, Linux kernel security module. Uh, you said all that. Its architecture strives to separate enforcement of security decisions from the security policy itself and streamlines the volume of software change with the security policy enforcement. The latest update also sends your traffic to the NSA. Yeah, that might be why some people have a problem with it. Um, no. Um, anyway. Um, SE Linux and then uh, uh, App Armor. Is that another? That's a that's an app that you can uh, use. No, another it's kernel, um, Linux it kind of goes in conjunction module. with SE Linux, though, and it is essentially a profile per uh, app that says uh, this is how I want my capabilities and my SE Linux managed. Gotcha. So you can use both of them together. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, like a really really secure uh, container are are going to use these and raw Linux capabilities in conjunction to lock down the container. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, let's see. I think that's it for the Linux kernel. There are quite a few differences between the Linux kernel and the Windows kernel. But after going through them, it really is a lot of the which level is this bit of architecture and it's in a different level in Linux versus Windows. And then also now there are, I think, three distinct Windows kernels uh, between the old, classic, horrible Windows kernel. Um, there's the DOS. There's the uh, there's, No, well, no, I didn't even think of DOS. There's, like, the Win9X kernel. There's the WinNT kernel, which does, um, which is much more stable. It has better multitasking. Won't mm-hmm. have... Uh, are uh, they on a new one now, then? Then there's the MinWin kernel, which they rewrote for Windows ah. 7. Now, MinWin is the smallest, standalone, bootable, usable segment of Windows 7. In order to get MinWin, Microsoft simply cut components from the Windows operating system to obtain a core which is completely isolated and self-sufficient. Wasn't In the original sense, Windows Phone running Windows 7? And that's probably why they had this? Yeah. In this sense, there are no dependencies outside of MinWin. Well, I mean, they. this goes with the whole... I'm sure they've just been adding components onto this onto this piece of software that then got too big, like with Windows, and then they have to rewrite it and modularize it and refactor it, and you end up with something that is much smaller and now is much more componentized. And that kind of fits with the broader message of what they've been doing with Windows since since they had the debacle with Windows Vista, where uh, you know it all exploded halfway um, 2000. 
three, I want to say. That's when, that's when they came out with Windows XP Service Pack 2, when they realized back in the Longhorn days, oh, this code base is getting unmanageable, and then it actually became unmanageable, so they had to rewrite it. And <laughs> uh, that's why Vista took so long. So they did the same thing during that, after they did that, and then they did it to the Windows kernel. Uh, so I support this activity, and I believe someone, I saw a video around when this came out, um, of a virtualized environment that ran the Windows kernel, which was basically a DOS shell, and like 32 megabytes. It's crazy. It's a surprisingly small amount of memory needed to boot up bare Windows these days. Ironically, it needed a lot more memory back when computers had less of it. But <laughs> that's Microsoft for you. Who um, else but Windows? Do you want to end with a, because uh, it is getting a little long. Uh, we're, we're past 90 minutes and we didn't even do a Where Am I ad. Uh, it's okay, we can save that for next week. Um, do you want to end with a, uh, a Windows exploit? Well, uh, uh, is there any other way to end? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, or have Linux a exploits are not that. Message. <laughs> it's uh, this. It's from a PowerPoint written by some from. Uh, uh, blah, blah. It's a PowerPoint written by some people from Google called "There's a party at Ring Zero and you're invited." Um, mm. And it just talks about executions of all uh, all oper- all operating systems make some of something. You know what? We haven't actually. I can't believe we talked for 90 minutes and I didn't go into one of my stupid, uh... Where is it? Oh, because I moved all that stuff. That's why. Uh... All systems make some assumptions about kernel security. Sometimes a single kernel flaw can break the entire security model. Things like sandboxing in Google Chrome and Android make us even more dependent on kernel security. Alright, that's it. Um, so they found a bunch of exploits. Uh... Blah, 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 blah. I'm trying to scroll down here. Um... Here's one Windows 2003 KI raise assertion bug. In Windows Server 2003, Microsoft introduced a new DPL3 that's accessible to Ring 3 code. Uh, IDT entry. It's the KI raise assertion. And if you're familiar with the Windows API, which I'm not, you'll know what this means. Uh, KI raise assertion in the public symbols, and they have a screenshot here. Uh, this makes uh, the. Raise assertion equi- uh, memory instruction roughly equivalent to the raise exception. Status assertion failed. Uh, interrupts that were not enabled before the execution dispatch. This would be really funny if I actually knew what this meant. Never mind. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Uh, via... It's a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, let's see. Windows NT NT filter token bug. NT filter token is a system service that makes routines like the create restricted token work. Anti-filter token would pass a void to help a, to a helper routine, which would be used to store the captured data. I can force the capture to fail by claiming the SID is bigger than it really is, and forcing the structure to straddle a page boundary. Basically, it's all some uh, really low-level, uh, really low. Really low-level bad decisions. <laughs> really low-level bad decisions that have to do with how memory is stored in programs and how privileges are. Handled uh, in programs, and that's that's really the whole moral of the story. I could read all of the stuff, but it all circles back to that. So it all comes full circle, like a ring. Goes, ah, there we go. Yay! And on that note, I think we've reached another end to another pull request. So, Christian, do you approve of this week's pull request? Looks good to me. Tyler, how about you? 
I do. Well, I've learned a lot about... I was going to say a lot about merging. I've learned a lot about kernels this week, so let's all hit merge. And we'll see you all next week, right here on Polar Quest. This has been a Pneumonium production. The views and opinions expressed on Polar Quest do not necessarily reflect those of Pneumonium LLC or its subsidiaries. <laughs>